You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, for the last five weeks, we've been having a conversation together about boldness. We've been thinking, why is it that the people who follow Jesus seem to grow with a kind of a beautiful boldness in life? And how is it that Jesus can make us bold? I was reading an article in Foreign Policy that was about unrealistic expectations. And they were talking about Jaws, you know, the movie. Steven Spielberg made that movie when he was 26 years old. Think of that, 1973. And they were reflecting on how it uh, affected our culture with unrealistic expectations. Uh, The tagline for that movie was, don't go in the water. And it's a movie that really changed the way Americans thought about water, uh, particularly salt water, right? Uh, we actually think that it's dangerous to swim in the water. The truth is, uh, very unlikely you'll ever meet a shark uh, when you're swimming in the water. Maybe some of you have had that happen. I don't know. But um, less than one American per year dies of a shark attack. And so in this article, they were talking about all the other things that are much more likely uh, that you would die of than a shark attack. So I just thought I'd encourage you with some of the other ways that you could more likely die. Um, a, a shark attack is 0.92 of every American, American will die every year. Trampolines, 1.1. Roller coaster, 1.15. Stoves that tip over, 1.31. Vending machines, 2.06. That one's kind of interesting to me. So be careful next time you know you hit it because the Doritos don't quite fall. I think that's how that works. Riding lawnmowers, 5.22. Fireworks, 6.6. But even here, the problem seems to be more stupidity. As uh, one clinical report read, when the fireworks did not go off, the victim looked inside the PVC piping. Okay, you don't want to, you don't want to do that. Uh, dogs, 16 per year. Skydiving, 21 uh, per year. And here's the one that I just think you've made a really smart decision to be in church tonight instead of in front of the Super Bowl because falling televisions, 26.64. Right, So we're just trying to save your life here with this helpful advice. But I, I just wanted to share with you that, that it seems to me that don't go in the water is not a very helpful strategy when it comes to our fears. To, to withdraw, uh, to hide, to disengage. Um, our fears are, in many cases, very realistic. We live in a dangerous world. The news just this past week, just crazy, towers and earthquakes and violence in, in the world, sickness. Um, there's a lot to be afraid of. And yet, um, the future belongs, I believe, either to our fears or to those who can face them and overcome them. Jesus understands this, so he calls his followers to boldness. He calls them to live today with his future. And he called that future the kingdom of heaven. It was his message wherever he went. So we've been looking at uh, stories, four already stories uh, that Jesus taught to describe what living with the kingdom was like. And we began, I just want to review for you a little bit so you can hold it in your head. We began with the parable of the coins, uh, where Jesus teaches us the where of the kingdom. As Jesus rules, the way things are in heaven is going to become more and more the way things are on earth. Where? Here. Then the parable of the dishonest manager taught us that the what of the kingdom. Nothing is more important to this king than what? People. And he's gathering us into a community of the future, which is how the church is supposed to be. Then the parable of the wheat and the weeds uh, taught us the who of the kingdom. And we're just supposed to act like it's all people, it's everyone. And so we're just neighboring like family with everyone, who? 
And then uh, last week, I, I thought Lori Wheeler did a fantastic job with that parable. I learned so much. The parable of the sheep and the goats, Jesus teaches us there the how of the king. We meet the king uh, wherever we embody his care and justice for those who are in need. How? Now tonight we come to our last of these stories. And here uh, we see the how much of the kingdom. The how much of the kingdom. The parables, actually two parables, mashed together by Jesus. The parables of the mustard seed and the yeast. And they're found in Matthew 13. So will you open your Bible, please, to Matthew 13. Uh, if you're grabbing the black book and the pew rack in front of you, turn to page 795. It takes you to the New Testament, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. As we read this, I want you to pay attention to the measurements, the how much in these two stories that Jesus is telling us. Now, if you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read this aloud together as an act of corporate worship for the benefit of the one who inspired it, Jesus Christ. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading his holy word. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. This is the word of the Lord. As Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. How much seed makes how much of a tree? How much yeast makes how much of bread? How much do you need for something in order for that something to become everything? Jesus is asking us, how much do you need of me? What I think he's trying to do is recalibrating our expectations. Now, one way to understand uh, set of parables like this, and Jesus does teach in couplets occasionally, there are two parables that are side by side, is to understand what they, it is that they have in common. If we can understand what they have in common, then we can see what it was that Jesus, uh, that led Jesus to, to, to tell these two stories um, uh, in the first place. And so there are three things that these have in common. We'll see these three things at the end of the story, at the beginning of the story, and in the mystery in the middle. In other words, I want to talk to you about low expectations, slow expectations, and no expectations. So let's begin at the end. Let's begin with the outcome of the story. Here, I think the question is, how much at the end? And the answer is, more than you can imagine. Let's unpack that a little bit. At the end of the story, we have uh, no longer just a seed, but we have a tree. And uh, it's a tree where the birds are living. That's kind of an interesting detail he has. And at the end of the second story, we have uh, bread. And uh, it's not just one loaf. We, we probably have uh, enough bread here to feed 100 people. When Jesus says there are three measures, um, that's 150 pounds of flour that this woman is using. Why? I don't know. It just kind of makes you think, doesn't it? But I think Jesus wants to make his... Uh, followers think about the world in which they live, and he's asking them implicitly, how do you measure reality in your life and in the world? What expectations 
uh, do you have for my transformation of things? His followers, if they look around, uh, they, they would measure reality in terms of Roman influence, I think. I mean, Jesus is talking a lot about being a king and the kingdom coming. And I think the one question in the back of the room is, hey, what about the king we already have? His name is Tiberius Caesar. And we can measure, we can calibrate uh, his influence in so many ways. We measure the breadth of his kingdom, the territory. We can measure the height of the Antonio Fortress that sits on top of the uh, temple mount on the corner supervising and, and controlling the, the worship of the people of God. We can measure the number of soldiers that Tiberius has on every street in Galilee. Most of all, those who heard Jesus probably would have measured the cultural, economic, military power of Tiberius Caesar as they walked along the roads and they saw crosses. Because the Romans executed a lot of people that they subjugated. And uh, Josephus tells us literally there were thousands of crosses along the streets of Palestine. And literally the uh, forests were denuded. They were running out of wood at that time. Crucified. I mean, this, the cross, of course, was their worst fear. And Jesus says, I know you see all that. But I want to tell you a story that asks you uh, to think about how you measure things. And I want to ask you how you measure your life. And it's important for us because um, we have metrics that uh, we got to be careful about. For example, you look at your school situation, you go, you know what, how much do I believe that could ever change? I look at my career situation, how much do I believe that could ever change? Family situation, how much do I think that could ever change? Neighborhood, things in the news, we can measure these in so many ways. And uh, because it's been that way for days, months, years, centuries, we're inclined to think that the status quo determines the future, that the way things have been is the way things always will be. And we're going to be very bold if we think that you can't really change anything. I think Jesus is asking his followers to look at their low expectations and ask, how much change do you expect from God? And he does that by provoking their imagination. It's so interesting the way Jesus tells the story. Did you notice that he has a couple of what seem to be extraneous details in the story? If this were just about something small becoming big, you could end this, the first story when he says it's a tree. But he adds the birds of the air settle there. And go, why? What, what, what importance does that have to it? Well, I don't know the answer to that. But I tell you, it makes me think. I wonder if it would make you think. We start to imagine weary birds flying across a barren field all of a sudden finding a tree that's there and making a home, building nests, and chicklets are born, and there's the sound of music and acrobatics, aerobatics in the air, and there's this dance, and all of a sudden we have this picture of natural harmony, the natural order restored to peace. That's suggestive. And then the story of the yeast, the leaven. Now, when we discover that the three measures is 150 pounds of flour, this woman's not making dinner just for her own family. And we're asking why. And he says, I don't know. But Jesus adds this detail in there to provoke our imagination, to make us think about maybe a courtyard, a broad open space, and lots of people starting to come. You hear voices and laughter. Maybe different languages are being spoken as those far and near come for a, a, a feast. Maybe there's music and dancing and clinking of silver and glass. 
And then we realized here's a picture of social restoration and communities coming together and the human race now is more of a unified. So you just let your imagination run wild. Jesus is saying, when you look at your situation, I want you to dream. Bold people will dream. Bold people don't look at what is. They see what is, but they see more than what is. They begin to engage their imagination. And the problem with fear is that the first thing it does is immobilize your imagination. You fear and you imagine the worst. It kind of colonizes your mind. And Jesus wants to release you from that. Say, so would you dream again? So here uh, at the end of the story, he's uh, addressing our low expectations and asking the key question, how much at the end? More than you could imagine. And how much change do you expect from me? Well, he's going to refurbish his followers' imagination through this story. He's going to recalibrate it. Let's look now at the beginning of the story. Here, I think, at the beginning, we're asking how much is at the beginning, and Jesus' answer is less than you can see. And this sets us up for a sense of progress, what the progress of the kingdom is like. I think the key question here is not so much how much change do you expect from God, but how much time are you willing to give God to do this change? The surprise of the story is that you can measure so much at the end of the story, even though at the beginning of the story, you can measure so little. Mustard seed, Jesus says. And he notes, it's the smallest of seeds. Proverbially, that was true. And he, he said, uh, the, the, the yeast, or the leaven that this woman mixes in, the, the Greek word literally there, it means to hide. She hides the leaven. Uh, in the flower, it becomes indistinguishable because it all becomes the same thing, and yet it grows. Now, the important thing here is, notice that Jesus is not saying things will get progressively better, that life in the kingdom moves up and to the right in a straight, linear function. That is just not the case with Jesus, and to assume that Jesus is saying that is to misinterpret this parable and to misinterpret badly. Because Jesus' point is that the kingdom of God is at any given point in time so small. It's the tiniest of thing, like a seed in a field, and you can't see it. Or at any given point in time, it's a hidden thing in a hidden place. It's just folded in there, and you can't see it. And if you think that because you follow Jesus and are open to his kingdom, your life will progressively get better, and the world will progressively get better as the church grows, you are not paying attention to this story. I want to suggest to you that progress, I put in air quotes, can be the enemy of perseverance. Just ask any alcoholic. On the day in which an alcoholic tells you, you know, I think I'm really getting better. I don't think this alcoholism thing is much of a deal for me anymore. That happens to be the worst and most dangerous day of her life. And when you start to think, you know, I think I'm getting better. I don't need to pay attention to this anymore. That might be a false sense of progress. On the other hand, and here I'm more concerned with people who keep regressing and they keep saying, oh, this must mean that Jesus is not in my life and that the kingdom is not activated with me. Neither of those is true. You just don't know. I can't tell you how many people I've met over the years that say, you know, I tried Jesus for a while. I had kind of had my Jesus phase, the church phase, and I did all that stuff, whatever that means, but uh, it didn't work. And, and can you relate to that? Do you bring to Jesus something and ask Jesus, I want you to fix this. I want you to come and be a part of this. I want you to change this. And it stays the same. And you're tempted to say, it's not working. I don't think Jesus is here. I don't think the kingdom is involved. Jesus is saying, be very, very careful. You cannot assess 
progress in that way. And I love the way our pastor emeritus, Earl Palmer, talks about uh, the, the wavy line or the turbulent line. The line of our histories, personal history, is a sinusoidal. It's a turbulent line. Uh, the line of the global history, the history of creation, is a turbulent line. And you just can't tell. If your life looks like it's falling apart, despite the fact that you know Jesus is present, Jesus is saying, that's just the way it's going to look. At times, maybe even most of the time. So be patient. People who are bold are going to have to be able to face setbacks. We're going to have to be able to persevere and go the distance. I was with a pediatrician this summer who just that day had received a wonderful email from her grown daughter. Uh, this pediatrician was bragging about her daughter. She was saying, George, she's just brilliant. And, you know, she, she, I think she went to Columbia University undergrad and Harvard grad school, and now she was working in Paris. And I was very impressed with everything she was telling me about her. But then she, her face kind of grew sad. She said, you know, it's been so hard for me because over the years, um, I have not been able to help her come to faith in Jesus. And she says, George, I'm a pediatrician. I teach parents all the time how to raise kids. And the person I love the most, my daughter, I was not able to communicate to her the thing that is most valuable to me, which is my faith in Jesus Christ. And it just broke my heart. And she said, but today, and here her face brightened, I got an email from her. And she read some of the email to me. And uh, this woman said, Mom, I want to thank you for not pushing Jesus on me. I want to thank you for not trying to compel me to think the way that you think, for creating space in my life for me to find my own way. Thank you for that. It meant more than you realize. And she said, but, Mom, I want you to tell me about Jesus now. Now, please talk to me about Jesus. Now, this is amazing because this woman would have told you for years, I didn't see any evidence of the kingdom in her life. I didn't see Jesus there at all. And I just thought this was just kind of the worst thing. I was so heavy-hearted about it. And yet the truth of the matter is she was patient and she recognized that sometimes the kingdom is doing its work in invisible, inscrutable ways. And because she was patient, she actually created space for Jesus to do what Jesus needed to do in his timing in her daughter's life. It's true for your situation as well. Here at the beginning of the story, we see that Jesus is recalibrating our patience. With these two stories, he recalibrates our imagination, he recalibrates our patience, and then in the middle, we see something else. We've seen low expectations, slow expectations, and now no expectations. This is the answer that Jesus gives to the question, how much, in the mystery of the middle. And I think Jesus' answer is, none of you and all of me. This is about who does the work in these two stories. Who makes it happen? You see, what bothers me about these two parables is that there are no heroes in there. And here I'm trying to teach a series on boldness, and I can't find anyone who looks like they're bold in this story. And that bugs me. There are no, hardly any characters. I mean, yeah, there is the man and the, the woman, but Jesus is clever and very careful the way that he crafts these stories. He makes it clear that it's not their power that does the transformational thing. You notice that. In fact, in each case, he tells the story very carefully with the first verb not being so or mix, but being took. They took and sowed. They took 
and mixed. That Greek word there, took, is received. The point is that what they have, it comes from beyond them. They receive something that's powerful and they deploy it and it's the power of the thing received that makes all the difference. It's their receptivity and their receptivity alone that allows them to participate. But the power itself, the hero of the story, is the one telling it, not the characters inside of it. See, to us, we understand something about DNA and how a seed becomes a tree. We understand something about fermentation and how uh, carbohydrates um, become carbon dioxide. You can ask Randy or anybody who uh, enjoys craft beer how this works. Uh, we, we understand the science of it. Um, but in their day, they didn't. I mean, these two things that Jesus picked were absolutely mysterious and inscrutable to them. They were the things like, we go, I, I don't know how something so small by itself becomes so big. I don't know how something, just a little lump becomes like a whole thing and it grows right in front of your eyes. It's magic, they would have said. And Jesus goes, yeah, you know, that's what the kingdom is like. It's actually not something you do. It's something that's done for you. It's about none of you, nothing of you, and all of me. It's about grace. Nothing is expected of you. I have no expectations for you. Nothing is needed from you. Nothing is deserved by you. It's almost offensive. This is something that Jesus does. This is the influence of the kingdom, his power, not ours. Grace. Jesus says, I want you to bring me your hurt and I will transform it into healing. Bring me your sin and I will make it forgiveness. Bring me your war and I will turn it into peace. Bring me your hatred and I'll make it love. Bring me your sorrow. I'll teach you to dance in joy. Bring me your despair and I will make it hope. I got this great letter from one of you this past week and uh, thank you for permission to read it. It's uh, it says better, I think, um, what I've been trying to say than I've been saying it myself. So I like to read it to you. It's, it's a little bit long, but listen to this. See if you can follow. This friend says, I have engaged the current sermon series, Live Bold, within the context of the question I have been asking as I age. What does a life well lived look like? And how does my life compare to the standard? To live bold requires confidence that no matter what, you are safe, okay, loved, and have a future. While the media and our culture often laughs at the idea that Jesus is enough, the truth of it is so profound, it transforms who we are, how we think, and how we live. The mystery of the cross is profound and counterintuitive. Having accepted the fact of my own sin, the magnitude of God's grace is so amazing. I can live in the knowledge that I am in the family and loved without any requirement other than to live in that reality. For me, the challenge has been responding to the metrics of the world in which we live. They fight against this confidence. We are rewarded as significant if we can count our accomplishments in visible metrics. Money, power, friends, grand projects, professional accomplishments, success against the odd, picture perfect families, and I would add blah, 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 blah. Living boldly requires I accept eternal measures. Living boldly is possible when I accept Jesus as my bedrock foundation and being his is enough. When I reach in my pocket, do I see the resources as the masters and invest them counting on God's multiplying economy? Can I trust him to live as a collaborator and citizen of the kingdom and working with and alongside others? Can I trust him to determine the outcome for my efforts? This has not been easy. In the corporate world, you make stuff happen. Recently, I had the privilege of walking alongside my father as he died of cancer. 
As the reality of his approaching death became clear, he looked back on his life and declared, I am a rich man. He said, my greatest accomplishments are the things that I didn't have much to do with. He said, God is able to take my striving, mistakes of judgment, and human frailty and turn it all into positive results for the kingdom, far greater than I dared to imagine. I look forward, he said, to seeing Jesus face to face. And then our friend says, we sang his favorite hymns and prayed him across the line that presented him no fear. As a young man, he writes, I regarded my father as unaccomplished. By the measures of professional success, he was a simple man of very modest means, but God used his faith and willingness to diligently work in the kingdom. Through people he encouraged and mentored, God produced grand results, and Dad was eager to give God the credit. As many gathered to celebrate his life, the stories of his faith and how his confidence in the love and power of God had encouraged others abounded. I was deeply moved. I've spent a life in striving, not because I doubted the theory of the power of Jesus or the worth of his grace, but I wanted to be seen as significant in my own eyes. Somehow being a child of God was not enough. I also wanted to measure up as a gifted, significant person who made a difference. Why? So I could prove to myself that I was somebody. It turns out this is timidity. Boldness would have said, Jesus is enough. And to let him make of my life what he wants. My challenge now, I'm 70. Had I moved into bold living 50 or 60 years ago, what would God have done with those years? A what if for which there is no meaningful answer. But now, boldness must be found in the confidence that God's grace still holds true for the time I have left. I need to reach into my pocket. The resources may be skimpy, but sufficient for the master. There is still time to love and work with people more effectively. I can continue to grow, and God can yield the fruit. How can it get any better than that? Isn't that a wonderful meditation? Thank you for that. The point is that the influence of the kingdom isn't ours, it's Jesus's. Max Lucado, in his wonderful book, uh, Grace, writes about the Apostle Paul, who sensed, he says, he sensed within himself, not just the philosophy, ideals, or influence of Christ, but the person of Jesus. Christ moved in. He still does. When grace happens, Christ enters. The Apostle Paul says, The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. Christ in me. Christ in me, the hope of glory. He's the one who makes us bold. So Jesus in this story, these stories begins to recalibrate our trust. Low expectations, slow expectations, and no expectations. The kingdom of heaven is like this, Jesus says. Small things in hidden places. Reminded that the Bible teaches us in Zechariah 4.10, do not despise the day of small things. I think Jesus would say to you, if you read that foreign policy article, I'm not taking you into the water. I'm going to teach you to walk upon the water. This Lent, we're going to engage uh, not just in small groups, but in uh, a small practice that might make a big difference if we let God do it. That's why I'm so excited to invite one another into these small groups. Uh, I meant to bring this to you, but we have study guides for each of you, that, and they're titled Thank You. I think you can get them upstairs tonight. I think maybe Randy said that. Um, the reason that for it, that for six weeks, we're going to reflect on one very simple practice, just saying thank you. 
and trust that God can do a great thing in the lives of our friends and neighbors, people outside uh, the church, a big thing with a little thing in hidden places. Well, back in the day when Jesus told this story, there were about 50 to 60 million people in the Roman Empire. And they were compelled by law to worship Tiberius Caesar. Most of those people never even heard the name Jesus. Certainly very few ever knew him. As he walked around Galilee, teaching, blessing, healing, he had just a handful of followers. And his life ended on a cross. But as it turns out, at that cross, God himself enters our worst fears. And today, most people don't know the name Tiberius. And there are over 2 billion people around the world who worship Jesus freely as king. This is completely unexpected. I don't understand it, but that's reality. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for the grace of no expectations. We thank you that you have embraced us. We thank you that you love us unconditionally. We thank you that you have a mission for this world and we get to be a part of it. We ask that you'll open up our lives to your presence, your resurrection life, living in and through us through the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask as we move out into the world with boldness now as a community, that you will get, you will bless the world around us and that you, Jesus, will receive all the credit. In your name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.